Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories, and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now. Redfern is the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. You're listening to Race Matters. This is a show made by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Darren Lasagas. How are you? This is our first official show back in 2023. Thanks for checking back in. And if you're tuning in for the first time, welcome. Here is our place for chats and discussion on culture and conceptions of race and beyond. The show is executive produced by Sharika Heller-Luden, who brings us today's story. What does it mean to engage with the stories of the forcibly displaced? What happens when those people seek support in each other? And what does solidarity with that movement look like for queer people, leading into a time like World Pride? Sharika spoke with Renee Dixon. Renee is building the first in the world queer digital archive of oral histories about LGBTIQ forced displacement. Since 2004, Renee has been working as a human rights defender at both national and international levels. And as a result of their work, they were forced to leave the country where they lived. They settled in Australia, where their position as an outsider and insider gave them opportunities to see how discourses shape stories around LGBTIQ and refugee communities. preface this interview with the use of language and when we're speaking of experience who have sought asylum, have recently settled or been totally removed from their home without choice, why is it important to use the term forcibly displaced? LGBTQ people exist in every culture and many of us, we love our country, we love our culture, food, families but people forced to live in order to survive. And some people have the privilege to study overseas or go um, and do, um, to to study overseas and then go to other pathways to stay in Australia. So that's the reason why we're using not just simply refugee or asylum seeker, but forcibly displaced to include these experiences of uh, migration as well. and um, forcibly displaced is uh, as well it's a statement uh, because we were forced to leave our homes in order to survive with that 
statement in mind, can you tell us how the Forcibly Displaced Peoples Network came into being and how you went about co-founding that organization? Ten years ago, uh, me and my partner came to Australia and we experienced all of the support from um, both refugee and settlement services and also LGBTQ services, meaning that we did not receive any support at all. Uh, we were homeless because uh, refugee service, they forgot about us and our, um, asked to help us to find the space where we can live. I experienced homophobia in refugee sector. We experienced total disengagement of LGBTQ organization with the issues of displacement. And we slowly started to create meetings to connect with people, uh, to create an events where we start working only at the beginning with LGBTQ women. And all of these experiences of resistance from support services, we decided, no, we need to, we need to organize the conference. We need to bring all of the stakeholders together and people with experience and talk about this. It's um, kind of the exercise of accountability as well, <laughs> because we can't talk about and we can't make, make decisions without having people in the room who will be affected by these decisions. So we brought together um, this queer displacement conference. Uh, we invited different stakeholders and forcibly displaced people. And we mapped what is actually really happening in Australia and in other countries. And this was the understanding that we actually need to register organization because when you're registered, it's harder to disregard your existence. Not that it does not continue to happening, but at least you still uh, have more power uh, and the capacity to advocate for the community. You began to touch on this both in your personal story, but also how the organization came into being. And as you were saying, there are specific refugee advocacy bodies and there are specific queer organizations. Why do you think there is such a distinct gap in this intersection when you were founding FDPN? Settlement and refugee services, they are systemically heteronormative and cisgendered um, in how they are operating and treat people. LGBTQ services, LGBTQ plus services, they're systematically lacking of understanding of race and how migration status impacts on you. For example, there is a move movement now in Australia to create LGBTQ health services. But they are often required to access them. You need to have a Medicare. Meaning that international students, asylum seekers, can access them. Asylum seekers need to, to update their Medicare card every three to six months. And often it takes so much time, up to three months. So it's it's impossible to, to receive adequate health care. People are establishing these services. They're often very citizen-centric. In another example, when information how to change your gender marker, 
it's often assuming that you have Australian um, certificate uh, that you were born here. So in case of refugee advocacy, too often we can see that in case of family reunion, they still understand family as a very heteronormative definition of it. Yeah, I think we can often take for granted in our fights just how anchored queer culture can be in white supremacist colonial ideals and that a lot of people who come here from the so-called you know global south may have also inherited like a colonial legacy that which is why they've had to flee their countries or seek asylum here in the first place and this is quite a big question but can you speak a little bit more about the importance of adopting a queer lens on refugee work and bringing refugee advocacy within queer spaces? I think we as a human we have multiple identities and um, these identities they are intrinsic to our everyday life and experiences and we should not be forced to separate separate them depends on the service um, it's not create a safe environment for us this intersectionality should be included in every service we can't speak to speak about pride and progress without acknowledging that we're still dying because of the racism ableism homophobia and transphobia and intersex phobia in our communities. We should not speak um, on the refugee week and ignoring existence of LGBTQ refugees. At the time of us speaking, Sydney World Pride is upon us and there's a whole heap of spectacle and celebration and even, you know, corporations adopting progressive rainbows. I'm curious first, what is your relationship to Pride? I think the LGBTQ plus community don't really appreciate um, how it's all started. And uh, we feel we need to, to reflect and, and respect the history, how it's all started. World Pride is not achieved and it's not equal for every member of LGBTQ plus community. There's so many community members who is left behind and we need to reflect on this and we need to center these conversations when we talk about pride. Pink washing is happening and brands are getting more money using this opportunity. While at the same time, small NGOs, artists, small groups that work very hard to bridge these existing gaps in LGBTQ community. They are surviving and they continue to be extremely underfunded and barely climbing over the poverty line. So LGBTQ community members should adopt practice in themselves to regularly donate to small community-run initiatives instead of buying another pair of shoes with a rainbow sticker that they would wear only one time. I want to pick up on a piece that you just brought up, which is the term pinkwashing, which perhaps not a lot of people would know as 
a phenomena, but we're seeing it in real time as you began to touch on, like, you know, slap a rainbow on something and then all of a sudden, um, you know, a corporation is an ally for the queer community. Um, in your own words, can you speak a little bit more about how you understand pinkwashing and uh, how it kind of intercepts perhaps our day-to-day interactions? You spoke about this well already in your question. Uh, it's just slapping the la- rainbow and say, we support LGBTQ um, people. But for me, it's always the question, how? How do you support? How do you commit in everyday life, in your work, in your policy practices, in your ethics? How do you support LGBTQ community from different levels, not only Western privileged, well-educated? With this, people are increasingly paying attention to this and Most recently, there's been a lot of calls to boycott events that receive their funding from corporations that, for example, participate in offshore detention and the mistreatment of people seeking asylum. Um, We're seeing it currently happening with the Midsummer Festival down in Victoria. Um, How do you see your advocacy and policy work kind of, I guess, in relation to these grassroots movements that are trying to call these corporations into account? They should be non-negotiables when community, when our community comes together. If you're letting security company that is running detention centers and uh, offshore detention centers, what are we saying to our community? That LGBTQ Australians are fine with disproportionate incarceration of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? that it's uh, okay to lock up asylum seekers uh, and deny their human rights uh, to access safety and apply for refugee visa? What does it mean? That someone's lives are more valuable than others and it all depends on the skin color? And letting this organization into the uh, festivals, it's not creating a safe community for all members. There is nothing equal about this. And I guess we need higher standards of ethics and deeper learning uh, of how cultural racism and ableism affecting lives of our community members. We need to do better. This is Race Matters on FBI Radio 94.5. Sharika Heller-Luden spoke with Renee Dixon, whose work with the Forcibly Displaced People Network uncovers and addresses the inequities experienced by displaced queer people. They're holding the Queer Displacement Conference from February 22, where they hope the power of people telling their own stories will strike meaningful solidarity. No conversation should be happening without people with lived experience in the room. We should be present at every level of the decision-making process. Because we often can see that academics, they're coming, they 
research the hell out of us. They're writing their papers, publishing their books, um, building their careers, getting their promotions. And it's nothing for LGBTQ community or for community who is affected by the research. Uh, we can see that <clears throat> a lot of people who work in the settlement services, they are from Western background. And often they think that they know what is better for us. It doesn't work like this. Nothing should happen without us. And any decision should take be taken without us. It should be happen in co-design with the consultation. And we should leave, lead these projects. Um, not privileged people who have access uh, to knowledge, education, and all of this stuff. So when we decided to bring this conference together, it's it was for the first time we brought all of these different stakeholders together with the community. And we set the very high bar how to organize community events that is centering this lived experience. This is priceless to see when people from the lived experience coming together and can contribute to the issues. When community members um, see that their lives are actually valued, that their voices are listened, and they can affect how the situation may change. Because after the conference, a lot of LGBTQ displaced people, they meet and found friendships. They found the love, they got married after the conferences. Some LGBTQ people displaced people, they first, they, they were involved finally in the project, into delivery of the project. And um, they got the um, contracts, they got money from, from their knowledge and lived experience. It's, um, it's very important to create a space where people feel that their lives experience and expertise are actually valued, that's important, and that can drive the change. Uh, and another important thing that um, we created this methodology to set the bar that this means to center lived experience, and um, it sent the message that this is not an isolated issue. We must work together with different stakeholders to create the, for, for community um, the environment that it's safe, that no one is left behind, and lived experience should be involved in all stages, in all decision makers, ma making processes. It's so obvious how considered the program is in all of its intersections from disability justice to HIV advocacy to kind of all corners of the global south and the very nuanced experiences that occurs within this intersection of um, being of forcibly displaced backgrounds and of like the LGBTQ community. It's so interesting to hear the way in which you're centering lived experience, which I think a lot of people try to do, but perhaps aren't successful at all the all of the time. And how do you begin to create a safe enough environment where people feel safe enough to share their stories? Stories are very important for social change, but we need to um, to create 
environment where we can share them safely, they need to be to show at the greater diversity of these experiences. Too often that when we talk about LGBTQ plus refugee context, these stories are reduced only to what it what happened to you and assuming that the life in Australia is is all perfect. But unfortunately from our experience, from our research, we're seeing that it's far from perfect and we need to do more work about it. In our work, we're helping people to understand um, how to talk about their experiences, to highlight the systemic aspects. For example, that experiences of transphobia in housing um, is not a personal issue, but it's an issue that affecting the whole of the community. We are training community to advocate uh, on their, their behalf to, cha- to make all of these changes. We're also not asking people to tell their stories. They should share their stories when they are ready to tell us. And um, we also do not reflect that actually process of storytelling and repeating what has happened to you can be very traumatizing, not only for the person who, le- who is telling the story, but to the person who is listening. And around the storytelling, it should be a lot of consideration and, and, and trust. I have been invited in uh, very interesting, uh, funny events where we have refugee who is telling their story. And at the end, someone from the audience coming to them and saying, thank you for telling the story. I'm so lucky to be born in Australia. That's the worst reaction that you can say. The person just opened their wounds to tell the story. Not that you feel lucky, not for your pleasure, but because they want you to make a change, to, to, to act some, somehow on these issues. Um, and it's a constant challenge for us to engaging with the media, for example. So often they want to tell only about how much violence was in the past and um, how everything is fine now. And all it does is to keep circulating these trauma porn um, narratives. And yes, we're using stories, for example, in our online training module, but it's told and develop the training together with uh, people from the community who have these experiences and they have full control over their story. And if they don't feel capacity to voice it out because it can be triggering too, uh, we can find the other ways around how we can tell their story. So it's, it's a lot of conversations, how to make it more safe and um, appropriate and inclusive as much as possible. Mm, yeah, yeah, there's really something to be said in the transformative impact of storytelling. I think it's hard to ent- underestimate how when someone feels safe enough and nurtured enough to share their story on their own terms, how that could lead to social change. I have to say it's been so incredible to hear you speak about the complexities of the work that you do but distilling it in a way that I hope people are able to grasp and hopefully be curious to 
learn more about you and your organization um and with that is there kind of a meaningful vision of change or solidarity from the perspective of you and perhaps the organization more broadly absolutely we would like to see that lgbtq refugee and migrants and uh, asylum seekers can get support that they need that is tailored to their needs and circumstances we are uh, when lgbtq displaced people feel that they're accepted for who they are without needing to hide parts of their identities where intersectionality um, and policies it's not just a buzzword but actual meaningful engagement and work of um, every person and ways the organization have resources to support both people who is arriving to Australia but also services that should support them. That is all for Race Matters this week. I'm Darren Lasagas. Thanks to our executive producer, Sharika Hellaludin, for that conversation with Renee Dixon. You can read about the Forcibly Displaced People Network and about the Queer Displacements Conference on our programs page at fbiradio.com. You can also listen back to episodes of Race Matters at the very same place, fbiradio.com, hit slash race matters. See ya. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters.